This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 40 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us. North Korea, facing sanctions from much of the rest of the world, has turned to cybercrime to help finance their operations. The Lazarus Group is well known as a state-sponsored team of criminal hackers serving North Korean interests, and in 2017, they set their sights on cryptocurrency users and exchanges in South Korea with a targeted spearfishing campaign. Juan André Hierro Saade is a principal security researcher for Recorded Futures Insect Group, and he joins us to help explain what the North Koreans are up to, the methods and tools they're using, just how sophisticated they may or may not be, and why, in the end, sophistication might not really matter much. Stay with us. We have an interesting group of analysts over at the INSIC group and Recorded Future. Uh, so I was talking to my partner in crime, Priscilla Moriucci, and uh, uh, part of her analysis of the situation geopolitically was to sort of focus on the uh, Pyeongchang uh, Olympics, which are happening now in, in South Korea or are meant to happen. Uh, and there's quite an interesting history there between North and South Korea and, and the Olympics in the past. So it was her assessment say, you know, uh, we're for sure going to be seeing something um, at least as far as the Lazarus group is concerned, uh, with using the Olympics as a sort of lure. It was kind of a challenge for us of saying, okay, well, we expect to see this, so can we actually find it? So, we, you know, we went digging uh, and actually uh, stumbled upon our very first sample was actually using that uh, as a lure, was uh, using this exploit to target this office suite that is used primarily in South Korea that's, that's, used, that's called... Uh, Hancom Hangul. It uses these HWP files. And the idea, it's essentially Office, but it's its own sort of software suite. The attackers had essentially developed or were using an exploit uh, for that software platform. But the documents that they were using to lure people in, the first one that we found was an Olympics lure that was sort of targeting this geopolitical group. And then from that, we went on to find this sort of bigger campaign that also included cryptocurrency exchanges and so on. So take us through uh, some of the details of, of what you found here. Take us through some of the technical information about it. For me, this is quite interesting. There's been a certain uh, amount of reporting uh, about uh, North Korea attacking South Korea when it comes to cryptocurrency exchanges or when it comes to the Olympics. So it's not like we were the first ones to essentially make the claim. However, uh, having worked on the Lazarus Group uh, for uh, quite some time now, the reporting didn't quite add up to me insofar as the TTPs were not the same. But the tools, techniques, and procedures that we're used to seeing for the Lazarus group, um, they don't usually include things like JavaScript, like uh, HTML applications, PowerShell, things like this that are, are relatively common for other attack groups are not very common for the Lazarus group. Hmm. So for us, it was interesting to run into uh, this new sort of small uh, subset of, uh, of samples that were targeting these institutions in South Korea that we expected to be targeted, but then to actually start to kind of unravel the mechanism of how those samples work and, and to actually find uh, the culprit that we expected. I mean, it, it was sort of like a backwards attribution thing, but we were, were trying to be as careful as possible mm. uh, to make sure that we were discussing the right team. So the way that this thing works is essentially you've got this malicious file for somebody using Hangul to open. Once you open the file, it's going to execute this shell code. That shell code is going to you know, decrypt 
or deobfuscate this uh, this thing in memory. Uh, and what ends up popping out, or at least is loaded in memory into you know the explorer process, is actually a DLL. Now, what's interesting about that DLL is once we pulled it down and actually started to reverse engineer it and analyze it and check code similarities and so on, um, is that the, the application itself is composed in, in large parts of the Destover code. So I don't know if you remember Destover. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure it came across your radar at some point. Uh, yep. Destover is the infamous malware from the uh, Sony Pictures Entertainment pack. Uh, back in 2014, if I'm if I'm not yeah. mistaken, which of course wide widely attributed to uh, <laughs> widely attributed uh, to North Korea, right. uh, also sort of like one of the main uh, namesakes of the Lazarus Group. I see. So for us, it was like okay, we've we've clearly uh, found found our man. And just to kind of clarify, even though in the Sony Pictures Entertainment hack, Destover was known for having caused the wiping of several uh, hundreds or thousands of machines. In this particular case, it did not include the wiper component. Hmm. It mostly was composed of the info stealer component. They were looking for different archives and files that they were going to exfiltrate. So it's mostly a sort of espionage tool in the way that it's been built for this particular purpose. I see. And, and so take us through uh, that's your attack vector. They, they're they using a phishing campaign, I suppose, to get people to open these word processor files. Um, the infection uh, occurs, and what happens next? Well, so the the malware is sitting there sort of stealing files, which I think is particularly interesting given that the targets here are uh, two, what looks to us like two very different swaths of targets. You're either talking about people that are geopolitically interesting, like uh, one of the strings involved in the Olympics lore was uh, uh, Friends of MOFA or MOFA, which uh, it seems to be sort of like this uh, geopolitical group very interested in the situation between North and South um, and composed largely of students. So in that case, you know, you could talk about uh, if if that's the group that they're targeting, then you're talking about the sort of standard uh, espionage activities, maybe counter activism activities that you might expect. Hmm. Uh, However, on the other side, the the other lures were suggesting to us was uh, that they were going after cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, And in that particular case, it's interesting that they're in there trying to collect information and trying to collect files because um, what you would expect is for them to be looking for some kind of further access into these sort of exchanges. Now, one of the ways that you might look at it is say, well, they just want the wallets. And, you know, that's one way to look at it. But I think that as far as the Lazarus Group goes, uh, we've seen that when they get interested in financial crime, they get overly ambitious, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's with SWIFT, whether it was with WannaCry. Um, and in this particular case with the cryptocurrency exchanges, my my guess is that they're uh, looking to establish a foothold within these exchanges rather than simply try to steal some wallets. So rather than going into a bank and, and doing a smash and grab or, or holding up the teller, they, they want someone inside who can get into the vault, I guess, is <laughs> yeah. an awkward analogy, I suppose. Yeah, that's a way to put it. And, and honestly, that's what we saw with the SWIFT hacks, right? I mean, they went in and what they wanted was to make these massive uh, transfers and these massive transactions. And interestingly, um, you know, in the case of the Bangladesh Central Bank, um, had they not gone quite so over the top, quite so big, I mean, what ended up screwing them in the end was a misspelling. But I also wonder if they'd had the patience not to try to transfer 80 million at a time, um, <laughs> if they might have also been able to handle this differently. They're not the first group to do this, you know. What is your uh, estimation of their success? It's really kind of hard to understand uh, to what extent they are being successful with this particular new campaign. 
just to dampen some of the the FUD involved in this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the the vulnerability that the that the exploit was intended for has already been patched, and you know it, that'll all come down to. Uh, the update cycle in South Korea as far as Hancom and Hangul goes, which I'm, I'm not too familiar with, but it's not a zero-day exploit per se. Um, there is a certain amount of warning already out there for people involved in cryptocurrency exchanges out there. Uh, so there, there's some things to kind of limit the notion of how effective this might be. However, uh, the Lazarus Group has been unbelievably effective in the things that they do for the most part. Um, it depends on whether you're looking at um, the end run of the campaign, whether it is that they get what they intended to get or whether it is that they actually got to the target that they intended. So that's kind mm-hmm. of a, a it's kind of fuzzy distinction. But from the perspective of malware researchers, I mean, if they infected the target, then they clearly already uh, got something. I mean, they, 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 they succeeded to a certain extent. That's right. from our perspective. From their perspective, if what they wanted was to get the money or to get the bitcoins or to get what they, you know, then we can start to talk about some different metrics. So um, if you look at campaigns like WannaCry, we could say that their success, as far as their metric goes, if their idea was to make money, was not good. It did not go well. Um, If you look at it from the perspective of a malware researcher, you say, well, they hit thousands and thousands of machines worldwide. That to us looks like a successful campaign. You know, you say they, they clearly established a foothold where they had presumably intended to go. WannaCry is a very complicated example. Mm-hmm. With the Swift hacks, you can see something different. You say, well, you know, they clearly got to where they wanted to go. They got inside of banks. They started the transactions. Um, and what we're hearing as far as reporting from Swift and from the banks is that they had some partial success. Mm-hmm. They were able to get some of that money out. Now, moving on to this campaign, what they're going to be able to do with Bitcoin, I mean, that that's variable. That's uh, complex. Uh, there's especially in, in South Korean exchanges, they're starting to introduce a certain level of laws or trying to dampen uh, some of the craze as far as uh, Bitcoin goes in, in, in the peninsula. Um, but worldwide, we're also seeing these massive fluctuations of prizes. Uh, we're seeing a sort of... Um, cash flow shortage from a lot of exchanges is sort of interesting whether you can actually cash out large amounts of what you're getting. Hmm. So the question then is, is this the kind of campaign where they were trying to pay their own way? As in to say, you know, uh, your hacking operations are expensive. If you steal some money, uh, you can pay for what you yourself are consuming or what resources you need. And then, you know, we can talk about the rest. Hmm. Um, Or is this a sort of campaign where you're just trying to steal large amounts of money for the regime? Those are very different things. So, so, so when you say, I'm sorry, when you say paying your yeah. own way, do you mean, um, you know, building up a cache of Bitcoin, for example, and being able to use that to buy, uh, you know, processor time on services or, or you know, those, those sorts of things? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's something that we need to consider when it comes to attackers uh, using Bitcoin. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we've seen, I'm, I'm trying to kind of dig back, but we've seen Sophacy, APT28, Pondstorm, whatever you like to call them. Uh, we've seen them looking for Bitcoin wallets in the past. Hmm. And this is a team that's more, you know, it's much more interesting in what they do as far as their servers and their infrastructure, because it looks like they would use those Bitcoins to establish new uh, virtual private servers to use as command and control servers. However, the Lazarus group is a little different. They tend to use hacked infrastructure. They almost always use uh, IPs instead of domains. Uh, it makes it a lot harder to kind of uh, track or try to sinkhole their campaigns. So 
the question then is, you know, what would you use Bitcoin for as far as they're concerned? And I think one of the big things would be, well, more exploits. The exploit involved in this campaign is actually kind of interesting to us. It's a very particular implementation. It's not one that we have seen being used by any other group so far. We've, we actually were able to delimit the campaign on the basis of that particular exploit. And when you look at it, it actually includes some Chinese terms, mm. which uh, is sort of um, unusual for the Lazarus group, at least. Like that, we I don't think you know. While they might leave a lot of Korean resources in their malware, sort of carelessly, you don't usually see any kind of Chinese terminology in there. So to us, it either suggested a very crude attempt at a false flag, which would not be the first time that they've done this. Okay. Uh, researchers over at BAE. Uh, found them embedding Russian terms into some of their malware uh, around the time of some of the SWIFT investigations. So maybe it's a crude attempt at a false flag, or alternatively, they bought this exploit from a Chinese supplier or developer, um, and they're sort of reusing that. So the kind of cutting and pasting from, from various sources to, to make a custom version of what they need. Well, that's actually, uh, what you described is actually one of the most fundamental um, understandings of the Lazarus group that we have. I see. Um, and that's from their operations for several years. The Lazarus group tends to essentially cut and splice what they need. If you ask me what their development environment must look like, um, I would say it's something along the lines of a very, 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 very big code base that they've amassed over a long time of development. And rather than having some kind of point and click builder, it looks more like they're cutting and pasting that code base to create the software that they need on a basis of functionality. It's actually what's made it really, really hard for researchers to properly cluster and categorize a lot of the Lazarus Group malware over the years. So you've got a lot of different families with a lot of different names like uh, uh, Spaspe and Hangman and Volgmer and Doozer, uh, Destover and so on. But when you try to look at this malware, uh, and categorize it properly, it's almost like it's all overlapping. Like they all seem to have pieces of each other. Um, if you write the right kind of rules and detections for these, you actually pick up a lot of different families at once, one go. Um, so it, it's actually, it can be quite challenging to look at Lazarus Group malware in bulk and try to understand the campaigns properly. Yeah, it's interesting to me because it, at, at first glance, I would think, well, that cut and paste approach speaks to a lack of sophistication. But the way you describe it, it, it may it could just be the opposite. That it is uh, that, that you know, sort of um, I don't know, crazy like a fox. You know, <laughs> that the simplicity is the uh, the uh, the sophistication of it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it, it definitely makes sense. It's sort of interesting. I don't like the idea of talking about the Lazarus group as sophisticated, hmm. uh, particularly because, I mean, we have worked very sophisticated cases before. We have seen very sophisticated groups in the past uh, who really deserve that notch or that star, uh, that yeah. gold star. But uh, the Lazarus group, I don't think they're particularly sophisticated. What they are is relentless. I mean, these guys hmm. will do just about anything to gain a foothold where they want to be, and then they'll exploit it in ways that, uh, you would have considered any rational actor would have decided was not a wise thing to do. So they're they're very interesting and they're definitely not to be minimized or um, to be thought lowly of. I think for any defender, having a, a run-in with this particular threat actor is not a very good day. Yeah. Uh, but as far as sophistication goes, I mean, we we would expect a really sophisticated group to have a much better quality assurance process, development process as far as their malware goes, a much more standardized 
uh, way of going about it. And and just to kind of give an example of that, I mean, with the Lazarus Group in this campaign with this exploit, we have found four or five samples. Um, it's a very recent campaign. It's very small. Uh, so you find four or five samples, and one of them um, is broken. So they, you know, it had the person, you know, once the person got to that lore doc, they could have opened it and everything, and the malware would have never executed. Hmm. And we see them essentially compiling another version of it very quickly after that. So it's one of these cases where you go, well, they're not being very careful. They're just managing such a sprawling amount of campaigns uh, mm -hmm. in this kind of, you know, hodgepodge way. Uh, that you know, a lot of mistakes are happening, but that's not deterring them. <laughs> right, and and I and I suppose they must have a certain amount of success. This must be working for them because they they keep at it. Absolutely. So that's the interesting thing about them, um, and it's it's a, it's a very interesting thing about cyber operations in general that we have to keep in mind. Uh, sophistication is not necessary. I mean, it's not it's not a must. When it comes to very specific types of things like, you know, ICS is going to take a certain specific type of knowledge, uh, air gap networks or, or very uh, well secured sort of environments. Sure, if you are set on reaching one very specific target uh, very quietly and getting to run long term operations, yes, that takes a certain level of sophistication and preparation. Uh, but that's not equivalent to value in the real world. I mean, what we've seen, not just from the Lazarus slash Blue Noroff operations against Swift banks, but also from groups like, let's say, Carbonac, which, you know, sort of set the staple back in 2015 as to what it's like to to take on bank heists on a digital level. Um, these groups are not defined by their sophistication. You were talking about, you know, with Carbonac, we were talking about exploit kits and publicly available uh, rats. But the notion was patience and careful lateral movement phases and careful um, observation uh, periods where they would just sit there and watch the person in the right machine, the sort of accountant that managed the databases, that managed the transfers. You sit there and pay attention for a period of two or three months. And once you know exactly how this works, once you know exactly what their schedule is like, then you make your move. And in that sense, the Carbonac group proved themselves to be a lot more careful than the Lazarus group. Mm -hmm. I, I really do believe that if the Lazarus group had had the patience to sit there and do this in a much more calculated way, they would have probably gotten away with these multi-million sums. And uh, it, it might have even taken a lot longer for anybody to catch on. So what's to be done here? How, what are your recommendations for people to protect themselves against this sort of thing? Well, you know, I'm afraid that as, as an old school AV guy, the recommendations tend to always be the same, right? So you you definitely want to patch your software. You want to have some kind of you know anti malware suite involved in your machines. You want to segment your data. Uh, these are all important things. However, this has to go a little bit farther, particularly now that we're involved in this sort of cryptocurrency uh, frenzy. Uh, the notion of having that kind of value within your system, within a system that is. Uh, it appears relatively easy to compromise, and, and by that I'm saying just about any endpoint system, uh, it, it should be incredibly daunting. I mean, maybe I have a particularly uh, low tolerance for risk, uh, which I do, I, 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 and I have to admit I'm probably the only person in this side of the industry that hasn't even gone into speculating over cryptocurrencies. <laughs> um, the notion that there is just a file sitting on your system somewhere that might hold thousands of dollars worth of value is just so immediate. It's removing uh, all of the hurdles that would usually be involved in financial crime and in cyber crime. So uh, just to take a few steps back. Uh, if you look at the evolution of banking malware, before the banking malware was a matter of, you know, let's 
let's get in the machine, let's get on the endpoint, let's wait around until we get banking credentials or credit card numbers uh, or bank account numbers, and then let's force a sort of transfer. And then, you know, as a criminal ecosystem, that would that wouldn't be the end of the heist. You needed mules, you needed people that would be able to move that money, and you were hoping that the bank wouldn't catch on to these transactions on time to stop them. Mm. That all changed the moment cryptocurrencies became popular because all of a sudden you had Bitcoin as this sort of semi-untraceable mechanism or certainly decentralized and and, um, unscrutinized payment mechanism. And that's what brought the rise of ransomware. I mean, if you think about it, the first ransomware appeared in the early 90s. It's actually not a new idea. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to try to get payments through the mail or get payments through credit cards. So it's Bitcoin that enables the rise of ransomware in a lot of ways. Now what we're seeing is being able to amass that kind of value in large, large quantities all at once. So it's this sort of natural evolution that happens with these new mechanisms that are in place. And if you're asking me exactly how to, you know, like tell people to be particularly careful, I mean, there's really nothing better uh, at the point of, you know, having a a, a single file or a single point of failure like a Bitcoin wallet on your system (laughs) than actually having it in cold storage somewhere. Please just copy it over to a USB and unplug it from your machine at this point. That's not really the sole solution when you're talking about malware that is persistent that is probably you know, on your, on your system um, uh, 24-7 watching, but it is definitely a big step forward to say, you know what, if they gain a foothold there, they shouldn't have immediate access to the single point of failure. Our thanks to Juan André Heros Aade for joining us. You can read the full report about North Korea targeting South Korean cryptocurrency users on the Recorded Future website. It's in their blog section. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.